song, a song that David wrote. And here it goes. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes it is, they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And then verse 13, I believe, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord, the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you, Carrie Jane, for reading scripture. I don't have to give a sermon now. I feel like the word's been proclaimed, and so grateful for that. And Earl for, and the music team, thank you. Um, I feel like that last song is, that we sung <clears throat> fits perfectly with the message this morning. And I love how God works that way among our staff, you might want us to be or think that we're more organized than we are and that we plan all these things, but often it's the spirit that happens so often that that the music fits and the things that we share with one another throughout the week um, to encourage one another. And it's great to see a lot of faces today, this morning, that people, children who've come back home for the holidays and 
family and friends, Ms. Rucker, I see you. Thank you for being here today. Um, it's hard to believe for me, though, that today is literally one week before Christmas. A few folks this morning have, have wished me a Merry Christmas, and it feels a bit jarring because um, as we approach the end of this Advent season and as we approach Christmas, I, for me personally, I, I haven't been able to enter into the Hallmark version of this season. I'm still back in uh, late October. Trunk or Treat was awesome, wasn't it? It was a really great event here. Um, I'm certainly not experiencing the excitement or the anticipation that my children are. I don't know what day it is today other than Sunday, uh, but I do know how many days until Christmas because four times a day, someone asks Alexa, Alexa, how many days until Christmas? Uh, my kids are very excited. Um, they talk to the device, as we call it so much, that um, it doesn't listen to Christy or I. It only responds to my children, which is a bit scary. But, um, but at the beginning of this Advent season, a few weeks ago, I was, I was struck by a lyric of the carol, Oh Holy Night. I don't remember, honestly, where I heard it. I thought maybe we'd sing it here, but I think it might be more of a Christmas Eve thing when we sing it here. But, but the lyric that, that sings, The thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. It really caught me like never before. I, I'm noticing, <clears throat> sorry, the weariness in the world and in myself more in this season than, I've, than I can remember. Um, there's a lot of serious things happening in the world, right? Economic uncertainty, there's war, there's epidemics and pandemics, there's all of the pressures, it seems, on God's good creation. And, and those are just the challenges that bear on us collectively and, and, and some, obviously, more directly than others. And, and, but individually, we all know someone who is under the, the physical and emotional stresses of diseases or illness or injury, ongoing medical treatment, the, the stress of financial insecurity, the relational stresses from strained relationships that, that percolate to the surface, more so in the holidays, sadly. Stresses with, between families and friends, parenting challenges, marital strife, loneliness. The last two years have been a long season under stress. And whether you recognize it or not, or whether it to the degree that which it's affected you directly, it, it's, it's affected all of us in ways more than we realize or care to admit. I saw the other day on social media that, that this time of year is when most teachers get sick. They're able to come down off of the stress and strain of, of a semester, and now their body, which has been keeping the score, catches up to them. But there's good news, too. This isn't just a Phil Bryan sermon of, of brooding and melancholy. <laughs> Although there's a lot more of that coming. I love you, Phil. I'm sorry. I just, I had to say it. 
But there's good news, right? There's an antidote to all of this. And it comes in the form of a person and the words and the works of our Lord and Savior Jesus. This is the good news of an otherwise dark and brooding season, which is Advent. You see, like so many things in the world, Advent has, has been subjected to misunderstanding and, and commercialization and corruption. If you're like me, to any degree that you've acknowledged or celebrated Advent in your life, you've been conditioned to it to being getting ready for Christmas. And for many, Advent's been experienced as a, a time of consumption, when in the traditional sense, Advent really invites us to reflect on the, the anguish and the pain and the hopelessness that are all around us as we anticipate the true hope and the light of the world. It's Advent, in its traditional sense, it's a, it's a time of reflection and, and preparation, a time of fasting and prayer, a time of identifying with longing and hope, of reflecting on this wilderness that we're in, this darkness that we're experiencing. It's a reckoning with our sin. It's a laying down of things and a longing for light. Our Advent wreath, as we light a candle every week, signifies this darkness becoming light. You see, friends, Advent is a, a season of stark contrasts. It's brooding and hope. Bishop J. Neal Alexander writes, he says, we've inherited a season under stress, a season shaped by darkness and light, dread and hope, judgment and grace, second and first comings, terror and promise, end and beginning. And as we reflect on these things, we, we are to celebrate the promise that, that Christ will bring an end to all that is contrary to the ways of God. That, my friends, is the good news indeed, and it's a, it's a certainty as we hear in our scripture today. You see, the birth of Jesus is the light of the world that's breaking into the darkness. And a resurrected Jesus is the, the first sign of this destruction of the powers of death and the inauguration and the anticipation of what is yet to come in the fullness that will be the kingdom that lives on into eternity. Advent calls us to stay focused on this gospel story and on Christ and hope, peace, and joy have been our themes thus far. But the question I want to spend a few moments examining this morning is, is how is the anticipation of our salvation in this Advent season to manifest in us as modern day disciples? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, would you graciously give us a clarity of heart and mind to hear the truth of your word, to see our deep need for the Son as our Savior and to submit to the leading of your Spirit to conform our will to your own. Amen. Well, as we heard this morning, our, our scripture reading is from Psalm 27. One of the best known and most comforting psalms in the Psalter, many say. As Carrie Jane told us, it's a psalm of David. It's written 
against this backdrop of a, a dark background that he was experiencing and his many enemies who had it out for David. It's, it's an unfolding in this psalm, in these 14 verses, of two very closely related moods by the same inspired author. Confidence in the Lord as rescuer and savior, and yet lament for what David is experiencing in this broken world. And these two opposing moods are, most, are also often in us. I mean, don't you find that you're both confident and anxious, trusting and fearful, or at least your mood can swing between the two? I I do. I think it's part of what it means to be a human being. So let's start by looking at the first three verses. David writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. He uses here in verse 1, Three expressions. He gives us this this memorable expression of his confidence in the Lord. He, He mentions light and salvation and stronghold. Light is is closely related to life and happiness in the scriptures. It signifies the joy of life, the perfection of holiness, and the illumination of the way of truth. Darkness, by contrast, represents evil in confusion, and gloom, and despair. And light is the thing that dispels all of those. The second figure David uses is, is salvation. He's saying that it's the Lord who brings victory or deliverance. And in his third figure here in this first verse, He portrays the Lord as this place of safety and protection. He calls it a stronghold. In the military sense, a stronghold is, is an unassailable thing. It's a place of ultimate safety. It's not a fighting hole, it's a stronghold. The place of safety and protection. And David says here, of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And David, we find, reading in verse 2, he can be confident because of what he's experienced from the Lord in his past. Verse 2, it's his affirmation that the, the Lord has demonstrated consistently for David that he is light, that he is salvation, And that he is safety. And in the third verse, he reiterates his unwavering faith in the Lord. He sets up that in these hypothetical future situations, but situations that could become a reality in the moment, that David can remain confident in the Lord. Well, in our Advent season under stress, 
We are invited, like David, to turn darkness into light, to turn our fear and our anxiousness into confidence, to remember, like David, that God is our light and our salvation and our stronghold. And and as we can be certain these things are true, we can be certain that these things are true. There is no one or nothing, no circumstance, God says that we should fear. Well, the great theme of Advent is hope, but it's, it's not really tolerable to speak of hope unless we're, we're willing to look squarely at the presence or the overwhelming presence of, of evil in our world. And Fleming Rutledge says that Advent reminds us that to be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. You see, David has confidence in the midst of of his dark moment, and, and so can we. Because for those who trust Jesus Christ, salvation is a promise that is perfected in him. Our salvation is perfected in the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. David can have this confidence, and so can we, because at the cross, Christ delivered us from the mortal danger of sin and death, and has restored all of humanity to a state of peace and wholeness. There's nothing you and I did to earn it. There's nothing you and I can do to add to it. Christ the Son has provided the complete redemption for our sins through his obedient life and atoning death. But, but nonetheless, friends, so often you and I can dwell on the things that we think we need to be saved from, and and there are certainly many, right? We we rightly want to be rescued from danger and hardship, and, and we most assuredly need to be rescued from sin and death. But oddly, at times, it's our human nature to resist these things. We heard it in our scripture reading this morning that the Hajex read from Isaiah 7, where... King Ahaz essentially rejects to ask, God recommends to him or suggests to him, ask me for a sign, I'll give it to you. And he says, no, I don't want to tempt you. But God gives him a sign anyway and predicts the birth of our Savior. The king of, of Israel, under siege from Syria and Judah, in his darkest moment, God says, ask me for a sign to assure you. And he won't do it. How often do we read in the Old Testament about Israel wandering through the wilderness? I just wish that we were back in Egypt. It would have been better to die in Egypt than to be experiencing what we are now. You see, the history of the human race is, is in many respects, a history of a, of a relentless resistance to the grace of God among Christians and non-Christians alike. When, ever since I was a young person, I was captivated by the Titanic. 
It's a massive, was a massive ship. I know it's not the most modern example, but a massive ship, the most technologically advanced vessel of its day, a ship which the owners marketed anyway as unsinkable. The designers didn't say that, but the owners thought it was. Hits an iceberg on its maiden voyage, perishes on a cold, calm night, and only 700 of the 2,200 rough passengers are saved. It's hard to truly grasp the emotions of those on board as they, they staggered from disbelief to resistance and finally to panic as the passengers and crew comprehended their ship's unimaginable fate. I came across this story of the chief baker of the Titanic. His name was Charles Jockin, spelled differently than it's pronounced, but he was resting in his bunk when the Titanic struck the iceberg, and he got up and alerted his men and proceeded on deck to assist with readying the lifeboats for launching. And Jockin found himself having to guide many who were confused to safety. But interestingly enough, he also encountered those on the ship who, in spite of its imperiled condition, were running away. They didn't want to go to the lifeboats. They refused to board the lifeboats. He had to resort to literally forcibly bringing women and children up to the deck, and at this point, the ship listing to the point where he had to physically throw people, women and children, into the lifeboat. It was a lifeboat that on the roster he was assigned, ironically, to be the captain of, as a baker, but when the lifeboat launched at the last minute, they chose somebody else. So Jockin is left standing on the deck of the Titanic as these lifeboats have launched. You may have seen in the movie, it doesn't, he, he was the guy at the, the stern of the ship the, in the chef's hat, riding it down as it sinks, the last man to enter the water from the Titanic into 28-degree water where he miraculously survived until daybreak when he spots a lifeboat and he's hauled to safety. You see, in spite of our own human proclivity to think we can save ourselves, or worse, to resist the saving grace extended to us in Christ, it, it takes an act of God, and sometimes a Charles Jockin, to save us. You see, God often shows us his love with gifts we thought that we don't need. He did it to Ahaz through Isaiah. He did it for Israel in the wilderness. He did it for those scared people on the Titanic. He does it for you and me. You see, his final triumph over sin and death, it doesn't depend on you and me. It doesn't depend on our ability to overcome sin or death. If it did, we truly would have no hope. So I ask of myself and I ask all of us in this room in this season under stress, what, what, what is the good gift that God may be giving to you in this season? A gift that you can't even see as a gift, perhaps. And, and what, what, what do we do with that? Well, in our text this morning, David, he's, he's facing opposition. He's experiencing fear. 
How does David strengthen his confidence in the face of this? We see in verses 4 to 6, he expresses his desire to, to be in the sanctuary, to abide in the sanctuary where he'll behold the glorious Lord and find security and celebration in worshiping God. Look at verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, in his time of trouble, what, what does David predict, or excuse me, what does David petition God for? He petitions him for a single-minded focus on the Lord and to dwell in the provisions of God's covenant promises of his people. David's saying, hey, I'm, my current situation is very uncomfortable. It's a polite way of saying it. I don't want to be here. But more than that, what I want is to be in your abiding presence and to experience in this life and in the life to come, all of the things that you've promised. And what does David want to do as he dwells in the presence of God? He tells us at the end of that verse, he says he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to focus on the wonders of God. And he wants to inquire in his temple to to constantly be seeking the Lord's will for guidance. And, and why? He tells us why in verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You see, the Lord's presence for David in his time of trouble, in his season under stress, in his moment of darkness... That's his place of refuge and security. And he tells us in verse 6, he gives us this image of victory. He says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You see, friends, in the sanctuary, that is in the, in the presence of the Lord, David finds all of the security and all of the comfort he requires to withstand whatever it is that he's facing. Our salvation is perfect in Christ. It doesn't rescue us from difficult circumstances, but it certainly frees us from some measure of the anxiety of, of having to get it all right, of having to, to find the perfect solution. And what the scriptures tell us and what David tells us and what Jesus tells us is that there's all that you and I have to do is abide in Christ and to bear fruit and let the, the ongoing process of salvation do its work because salvation is perfect in Christ, but salvation is also a process that's provisioned for us through the presence of Christ after waking the Titanic's team of bakers to go to their appointed place of duty, Charles Jockin, he ordered them to provision the lifeboats with bread. 
Each of the 13 men prepared and carried about 40 pounds of bread each and, and stocked the lifeboats that there would be food for the survivors for, for whatever amount of time they would find themselves adrift. It struck me because bread is a, a staple of life that, that we see a lot in the Bible. It comes to all people from God's providence, and it's, it's one of the many biblical images that if we trace it throughout all of the scriptures, gives us a picture of salvation history. Bread was the miraculous substance that, that God's chosen people were provided in their wilderness wanderings at the time of the Exodus. It's the spiritual reality of faith in Christ and his atoning death as Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And when we look at the Psalms and this imagery we find of, of a messianic banquet in eternity, bread figures prominently. When Jesus declares that he's the bread of life, he truly means that the bread he provides gives life. In Christ, we're given nourishment for our journey through this dark and hostile world. Well, the Advent season is, is designed to lead us into an ever deeper awareness of, of the solidarity that all human beings have or share in pain and darkness. Right? None of us as followers of Christ should, should count ourselves as exempt from the distress of others. It's part of what being in the body of Christ is all about. But our Christian hope in the communal resurrection of the dead should, should transform the solidarity of suffering into a solidarity of joy and fulfillment. One day, the power of death and its attendant sufferings will be lifted from all of God's creatures. And all humankind will rejoice together in the defeat of suffering and death in God's kingdom. And will celebrate together in God's presence for eternity. So what, what should we then do in this Advent darkness? Well, we see from our text this morning that, that David expresses his confidence and seeks the Lord's in prayer, virtually the whole second half of this psalm, which I won't go into any detail, is, is a prayer that David prays to the Lord for his continued presence, protection, and guidance. And it culminates in verse 13 as this statement of faith that he will be saved. David says with great confidence at the end of the psalm in verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So in these final verses of the psalm, David reminds us to, to look to the Lord in, in confidence of the blessings that are certain to come and to courageously wait. That's the Advent message, and that's our calling, friends, as modern-day disciples of Jesus. In a world of profound darkness and distress, in a world of pervasive sin and evil, 
We are called to look to the one true light, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in the midst of all this, we're invited to look up like David does and to raise our heads because our redemption is drawing near. Our weariness, our desperation, our uncertainty, our fear, and our longing. I saw somebody sharing on Twitter. It was profound to me. They're all part of the Christmas spirit. And as the church, we're enlivened by the Holy Spirit and called to a ministry of expectant waiting in the midst of a broken and weary world. Friends, if a broken and weary world can't look to the church to see people who are remaining confident in God's promises and His provisions in spite of whatever it is that we're experiencing, then I don't know who else they can look to. We're called to become a manifestation of the hope of Christ's coming again in glory. And we can take courage from the fact that God has willed us to be witnesses of the incarnation of Christ and the hope of the world. So in the midst of the trials and our sufferings of this world, may we believe this promise. May we trust his his word rather, and, and hold to this hope until the Lord comes again. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Eternal Father, strong to save. You sent your beloved Son to redeem us from sin and death and to make us heirs in him of everlasting life so that when Jesus comes again in power and great glory to judge the world, we may, without shame or fear, rejoice to behold his appearing. Father, give us grace not to resist your salvation, but to yield to your work, to cast away the works of darkness, to put on the armor of light, to reckon with our sin and to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And may we do so now in the time of this present immortal life in which your son Jesus came down from heaven to us in great humility And help us to yield to your spirit to become the manifestation of the hope of Christ's coming again in glory. That in the last day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, that we may arise to life immortal in our salvation, which comes through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.